What would happen if an artist had control of a school curriculum? Henry Ward, former deputy head of Welling School in South London, has blurred the boundaries between artist and teacher, and the results for his students and the whole school were transformative. I talked to Henry about the role his artistic practice played in developing his teaching philosophy, and he shares some brilliant examples of his students' work. Most importantly, he offers a glimpse into what education would look like if the arts and creative learning were truly valued. I had no real desire to be a teacher, and I kind of became a teacher slightly by accident. Um, and then once I was teaching, the idea of any kind of responsibility was horrendous. Mm. But I quickly realised that without the responsibility, other people get to come in and make decisions that have an impact on what you do. And so it started with taking on responsibility within the department because I was doing, starting to do things that um, I, I, I suppose were quite innovative and I had a head of department who was quite open to that. But then when he got a promotion and the idea, well, somebody else is gonna come and be head of department, what if they come in and they've got a restricted idea about what we should do? Mm. Maybe I need to be head of department to keep doing what we're I doing. See, yeah. And it carried on like that really. And then, and then I mean, the, head, the deputy head thing was slightly different in that I was director of specialism and then the school got uh, taken over uh, by an academy chain. Mm. So the head, the head was sort of disappeared. And in came this you know, shiny suit wearing group of people and they, they just made the job a deputy head job. Um, so it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a choice. Okay. And I think they did that because they, they saw Director of Specialism. They said, we don't need one of those, mm. so let's give him lots of things he doesn't want to do. And then when he's gone, we can remove that position <laughs> from the post. And I'm pretty sure that's what it was. <laughs> but of course, what happened was they gave me timetable and curriculum and options and, and uh, all sorts of line management in different areas of the curriculum and so on. And um, that's basically giving somebody the school. So then yeah. I realised that actually it was a pretty exciting thing to do. And what if, as an artist, you had control of the school? Mm. I mean, what if you change a school from that perspective? So I think for the academy chain, which, which obviously I won't mention, but it's easy for people to look up, um, are quite sort of want a kind of consistency amongst their schools. They accidentally put somebody in position who was going to go completely the other direction and take the school somewhere else, um, which was great fun. So, so this yeah. is where kind of sci-art came from. Sci-art, uh, the canon, uh, yeah. drawing as a cross-curricular subject. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, all sorts of what projects. What was the canon? Just, you so the, can, the canon was uh, a talking lesson with year sevens. So what we, we realised one of the biggest issues at the school was literacy. And then speaking with the English teachers, their, their sort of understanding of the literacy problem was that it wasn't about um, uh, what we call decoding. So it wasn't about the idea that um, kids couldn't read something. They could read it, yeah. but they didn't know what it meant. Right. And that context was missing completely. And uh, we'd actually, what we tried to do, we'd, we'd tried to become the 17th state school in the country that taught art history A-level mm. uh, with very little success. So kids wanted to do it. And then we realized that at 16, they didn't have any context. So they didn't know there'd been two world wars. They didn't know, I mean, yeah. it was really terrifying. Yeah. And you suddenly realize the kind of uh, impoverished nature of not having context. Mm. So we came up with an idea, which was what if we used pictures uh, of artwork that had been made as a way of talking about the time it was made in. Mm. Not assessing it, not getting them to write anything down, just let's talk about it every week. Uh, so I took an hour off the curriculum for year seven can't remember where I took it from. And uh, every week we showed a, an image of an artwork and we said to the kids, what are you looking at? Mm. And they started talking about it. Mm. And over a course of an hour of talking, we'd develop an understanding of something. And then the next week it would be an artwork made maybe 50, 100 years later. 
We say, what are we looking at now? And then they talk about how it was similar or different to the previous one. And what That's that amazing. Meant. So these were just starting points. They were just starting points. And, and so what happened over the 38 weeks is we covered a thousand years of history. Mm. And we covered, you know, the Reformation. We covered the wars. We covered uh, the Enlightenment. There's, you know, all sorts of different key moments. Mm. Um, and the kids' confidence grew so quickly. So after a few weeks, they realised there wasn't any right answers. They could put their hand up and say, this is odd, why, why is that happening? Or, I've just seen this and that, we haven't seen that before, and so on. Um, and it then started to feed naturally into all their other subjects. And what happened was, you know, you may know it's like a specialist school, you're supposed to have an impact across the curriculum. And for years, as a specialist art school, uh, we couldn't do that at all, because you'd go over to the maths department, mm. And uh, you'd say, oh, we're here from the art department. And they'd shut the door and say, thanks very much. No, thank you. You know, we're, we're maths teachers. You can be art teachers. But what happened with the canon was that heads of other t subjects started saying, well, if you're going to do 1,000 years of history in these canon lessons, why don't we change the history curriculum so we just do 1,000 years of history too? And then the English department said, well, why don't we just do like, things that have been written in that period? So when they come to us and they say, we've just been looking at Caravaggio, mm. we can start talking about what was being written at the time. Mm. And then the languages teachers said, well, why don't you give us all the images you're using and we'll use them in the language lessons the week after and get them to talk about them in Spanish or French because then it's the same picture. So kind of by accident, we created this, yeah. this spine of the curriculum, which was a thousand years of art history. And, yeah. it, and it was transformative. And the anecdote I like to tell about it was at the end of the year, the first year, we took, a, uh, we took the gallery because you had the gallery at the school mm. and we put a line of black tape around the gallery and we put all the pictures up in chronological order that we looked at and then we gave all these year sevens charcoal and we said go in and just explain history all over the walls just write it all over the walls and there was this tiny little kid who pushed this very large girl out of the way because of course at that age it's fantastic mm. discrepancies in height because he he was the one who wanted to write about joseph wright of derby's burning air pump and he started writing and as he was writing he said this is the first example of non-religious iconography in western art this is about science and the head teacher stood there and went Bloody hell. <laughs> so that was a, and <laughs> I think that was the, yeah, it was amazing. And yeah. what's interesting is, you know, I left Welling a long time ago now, but uh, seven years ago, and uh, Sci Arts no longer there, right. some other things are no longer there, but Canon is still, really? is still on the yeah. curriculum, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, amazing. So what I love about that is that just that really open ended starting point of what you're looking at, and that was really it. Yeah, so that was no it. assessment, which is no incredible. assessment. That which they let you do which that was great, well. yeah. I, I don't know whether they're still not assessing it, but yeah. because of course, well, I mean, there was no nobody else was teaching this, so there wasn't a. So we said, well, we'll just assess through discussion. We'll just mm. say they're getting on well, they're getting on less well, and I mean, we were, yeah. Probably times have changed. I don't know how much yeah. license you'd be given to do that in a school now, but yeah. it, but it was great, and it meant the kids. There was no pressure to write this down. Mm. You know, let's just talk about it. Let's, mm. yeah. And then the impact that has across the other massive. Really, it's the, the antidote to the silos that are created in schools by, yeah. by curriculum disciplines, isn't it? Yeah, and there's a lot of, I mean, there's loads of educational theory around this idea of more project-based learning. Mm. And, uh, you know, you probably know about High Tech High in, in oh, California yeah. and that, that kind of idea of removing assessment grades and thinking about, about ways of, of, of learning through projects. There's an um, amazing school up in Doncaster uh, that's, that's doing it entirely. It's got rid of, it's got rid of subjects completely, and right. they do things like... Uh, you know, in term one, it's we're going to build a bridge across the river, wow. and then it covers every time. By the end of the term, they say, "Did we build a bridge? And can we walk across it?" Yeah, yeah. so that was successful. And, and I think there's a lot of um, th there's a lot of really progressive ideas out there. Mm. But at the same time, there's a the bulk of education at the moment is becoming even more spiloed, even more. So it's a real, mm. you know, it's, and I think for for art teachers in particular at the moment, it's a 
it's a trying time to yeah. be in there and trying to do anything. Certainly when I was training, and I trained at Goldsmiths like you did, um, you know, I was fantastically fortunate in the tutors and stuff I had, but it was still very much, it felt like I was learning, I was learning to be a teacher. And then alongside it, I was thinking, I do hope I can carry on being an artist. Mm. And it was encouraged, but it wasn't part of it. And the, the shift with this for me is saying, this is just, this is going to change your practice as an artist. Like, don't think you're just going to make work yeah. in a studio on your own and come in and teach. Mm. No, you have to make the two things one. And You've then it's really going to symbolic thing you speak about. Absolutely. The two sketchbooks becoming one. Mm. Okay. One of the things I've always felt strongly about is that you should you make the most powerful things, I mean making like the broadest possible definition mm. of that word, when you respond to the context you find yourself in. And um, I remember when I first left my undergraduate course and moved back to London and got a studio and like really struggling to afford a studio and afford any materials and, and talking to a friend and she had a studio next door. And I remember coming in once and sitting, sitting in her space with her and she, had, uh, she was sitting reading a magazine and there was nothing in her space. And I said, are you, you're not making anything? And she said, oh, I've, got, I've got two or three brilliant ideas. I said, well, why aren't you doing this? She said, well, I can't afford the materials. So, right, so what are you doing? You're just going to sit and read a magazine? And she said, well, yeah, because I've got this idea. It's going to be brilliant, but I just can't afford the materials mm. for it. And I remember thinking, that's odd. Like, why don't you just do something else then? Like, surely you have a compulsion <laughs> to make. And I've thought about that a lot over the years of, like, when I didn't have a studio and I had to make work in, in the, sh the shed, the, the work was small because because the shed was small. Yeah. That's all right. So they make small work. Uh, you know, if if you're if you're you don't have anywhere to make, then you have to make work in a notebook, or you have to make. Work. And I think you know, if you think about every art teacher's go-to artist, the Van Gogh. You know, yeah. what did Van Gogh do when he ran out of paint? He drew, and then he made the most lovely drawing. When he ran out of paper, he drew on the back of an envelope. That's yeah. all right. Yeah, he didn't yeah. say, "Well, I haven't got any paints." So yeah, I'm going to wait for. Yeah, and I, and I just think it's so. For me, it was it was sort of. The pressures at school, in some ways, the 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 having no time. I mean, you know what it's like. Mm. That you know, you're in stupidly early. You don't take a break. You, you've got nothing left at the end of the day. Well, what if that becomes? Then we'll make that practice. Then make that what it's about. And now I'm in a privileged position of having a bit more time, and so I fill the time by getting in the studio and making <laughs> work again. It's yeah. great, you know. So it's kind of, I think, um, I think context is really responding to context is really mm. important. It'd be really good to talk about some of the students' work because I know um, there's one that's about the archive. Was the oh bench. yeah, yeah, yeah. Could yeah. you talk about that? Well, that, I mean, that's still. I think of all the of all the things that um, any students made uh, that I was lucky enough to work with. I think that's the that's probably if I had to pick a work, mm. it would be that work and it would be that project because I think um, it there, there are sort of certain key moments in my evolution of, uh, as a teacher where I feel like. There were, there were things that shifted. So one was the thing I was talking about with the losing a student and suddenly going, what if this is all part of one big thing? And, and that kind of magical epiphany moment. Um, but another one was definitely this project. And it, and it came out of um, uh, an afternoon where I'd, I, I knew I had a, a class. I hadn't planned anything particularly to do with them. It was a beautiful day. It was you know autumn day, low sun, crisp, cold, but sunny. Um, and I thought, oh, well, we'll let's just go for a walk, you know, let's just spend the hour going for a walk around the school. Um, and so we all kept our coats on and I got everybody to bring notebooks in case anything interesting happened. We went off for a walk around the school and, and we went to all sorts of places they wouldn't normally go to and we had a really nice hour just chatting and it was great. And, and uh, one of the things that we came across was this display um, 
in a corridor that was normally just for staff and it was a display of photographs going back through the history of the school. And the school had originally been a boys' school and a girls' school on the same site, founded in the late 20s, early 30s. And these kids had never seen, they'd never seen those images because it was in a staff area, stupid really. Um, and they were really interested in them, of course, because who isn't interested in the history of, of, of where you are? Going back to what we're saying really about context. Yeah. Um, and this one particular student, uh, a girl called Camilla Price, she got really interested in them. And she, the next lesson, she said, could I go and re-photograph those photos? I said, I'm sure you can. So I sent her off to the school office to get the key. And she came back a couple of hours later, very excited. And instead of being sent to the, the notice board, they'd given her a key to what they called the school archive. Now, I've been teaching at the school for 10 years. Didn't know we had an archive. So I was like, <laughs> what is this? So she took me over to show me. It was a, basically a messy cupboard. But it was full of all the material relating to the school, going back for, at that point, you know, 80 years. Mm. So registers, newspaper articles, trophies, uh, school photographs, uh, cuttings, journals, all sorts of things. And um, she just completely, you know, something clicked in her. So this, is, this is actually what I'm really interested in. So she spent the coming months tidying the archive up, organising it all properly, which obviously everybody was very happy about. Mm. Uh, and then got very, very interested in uh, a period at the end of the 50s, early 60s, just before the two schools amalgamated and got interested in the girls who were at the school then, who now, of course, would be women in their 70s. And so she started tracking them down, and she brought them in to the visit at the school, or she did interviews with them if they lived further afield, so some of them in New Zealand and Canada and places. And over a period of time, she built up this amazing kind of archive of oral history about the school. And then for an exhibition, she found this pew that had been carved by boys in the boys' school as a present for the girls in the girls' school. It's kind of amazing thing um, that was almost the last physical evidence of the old schools and so she installed that in the gallery with these headphones and you could sit on this pew and listen to these old ladies talking about being at Welling School yeah. in the early mm -hmm. 60s and and it was an enormously powerful very very sophisticated piece of work but why it was important and why I, I like talking about it and why I think it's significant in my career is that it was a, the sudden realization that Okay, Camilla was an artist who happened to be 17, and I, I'd made that decision quite early on in my career that, uh, you know, I was fortunate to teach people between the ages of 11 and 18, but I was teaching artists who were aged 11 when I met them and aged 18 when they left, and, and uh, you know, it's not like you graduate into being an artist at mm. that point. So I already knew she was an artist, but what she did made me realise she, she was operating like an artist in residence, a proper residency, and that was a really important shift in my own thinking of suddenly thinking what if what if we all if we all see ourselves as resident artists and what if my role within the school is a resident artist and her role within the school is a resident artist and her residency is going to be seven years and mine at that point was uh, 10 years mm. and in the end ended up being nearly 14 years yeah. that's a long residency yeah. so how do I make work that's really about where I'm at and that that was a it's simple but actually profoundly important change in what that meant about what I was doing, what the students were doing and how they were making and and, and it, it started to, I, at the time that that happened I, I just began, I just began my doctorate and I was, I became more and more interested in that around, uh, you know, this idea of context, we keep talking about it, about the importance of context but about about why context breeds more interesting work and, and thinking about you know, the fact that one of the things that doesn't happen in school art is it, almost always is any, any understanding of the context in which it's made. So we get, you know, most 
crappy art department to get kids to do copies of historical work mm. from a, 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 you know, a, a dead white irrelevant canon. Mm. And if they see themselves as progressive, they get them to do copies of contemporary work. Yeah. It's the same problem. But what about if they make work about what it's like to be at school? Yeah. Why doesn't anybody do that? Because yeah. it's so interesting. And once you start letting them do that, God, it's, it's amazing mm. what happens. Because then they're making work about who they are, where they are, why they are, when they are. Yeah. And it's amazing. You said um, the contemporary is social, socially responsible, collaborative, multidisciplinary, and multi-thematic. And any teacher who's concerned with relevance must tackle the contemporary. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you go and say, I wasn't interested in, in being the artist in the classroom, but rather one among many. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a... I've used the word already in this, this conversation, but it's a, li it's a liberating position to be in. Mm. You know, if you stop worrying about being the, the oracle mm. and you start thinking about, of course, your role is significant. You know, you're, you're going to be the... You're going to author a situation in which things might happen and you're going you're gonna to set up the, the structures in which things are going to occur. But then if you allow it to become dialogic, or genuinely dialogic, if you, if you allow yourself to listen to what they're talking about and they're interested in and it becomes, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a great situation to be in. So how do you enable teachers, educators, to, yeah, to, to accept that liberation or to embrace it? I think, if I'm honest, I think it's becoming progressively more difficult to do that. I think that the pressures that current training teachers are under are just ludicrous. I mean, I just think it's, it's reaching a point where it's, it, something's got to break up and start again because mm. um, I think in the five years I've been doing, working very closely with the Institute, I've noticed, uh, I mean, there's a point you'll remember from your own PhD, there's a point where people's heads start to go down a bit and they start to get kind of, you know, and, it, and that point used to be around about Christmas or just after. And, and now it seems to be about a week into the course where the, 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 the realities of being in a school are so, are so oppressive mm. that, that already the kind of optimism and the excitement is, is being squeezed out. And, and I, I mean, some of the, going back to the, the anecdote about Camilla's work, I had the most incredible question from a PhD student this year, not one at the IOE actually, but at another course I was doing a talk on. And um, they said, uh, well, this must be a while ago. You, couldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to do that work now. And we're talking about somebody two or three weeks into their PhD, and I, and I was a bit taken aback, and I said, I don't understand what you mean. What do you mean you wouldn't be allowed to do the work? And they said, well, d uh, data protection. You know, you were allowing a, a student to access the names and the details of, of other people who'd been at the school in the past. And I, and I, 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 was, I was gobsmacked. Yeah. And I said, but you've missed the entire point of everything I've just talked about, if yeah. that's what you're worried about. And they said, but you have to be worried about that now because you have to be thinking about... And I thought, if that's the mentality at yeah. the beginning, because it's so, how are you going to do anything? Yeah. You know, it's, at least it's, start it's, free yeah, and radical. It's, and just, then. it's just incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I think, so I think we're, we're, we're living in really peculiar times around that at the moment. And I think there's so much anxiety about what you can and can't do. I'm very pleased to be out of it, especially in its current form. Um, but I'm optimistic that it will... Mm. It will it will get better because I think um, I don't think I don't think it's an entirely linear thing. I don't think if you look at education, the whole of education, but let's say even if we look at art education, 
I don't think that you know there was a starting point of when people started saying, should we teach people about art, and that we've we're, that we're constantly moving in forward at all. I think I think it's a cyclical thing, and I think it's a cyclical thing. But maybe it's a spiral. I think it sort of builds on, and sometimes it dips. I think it's it's kind of a it's a complicated, slightly wobbly spiral. Mm. And at the moment, we're at a, a particularly tricky low point. But it will bend round, and we'll end up being maybe even at a really fantastic high point at some point. Mm. Um, and I think people will rediscover things, or discover new ways of doing things, and they'll get excited about it again. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But maybe in ten years' time or twenty years' time, people will say. Wow! Look at the dark ages of the yeah. of the twenty twenties when it was really bleak and there was almost no art going on in schools. And look at it now! And can you imagine people didn't want to do it? So I think, but I think that our job as people involved in art and art education is to keep is to keep moving. Because if we stop moving, mm. then maybe the maybe maybe you don't go around the spiral. Maybe it just sinks in at mm. a low point. I mean, thinking about sort of edu how education could be structured differently, and I, more and more I think about. Wouldn't education be better if people were doing something else as well as teaching? Because mm. I think actually kids would get a lot more out of that. Mm. So I, you know, more and more I think t no teacher should work five days a week. No. That's mad. It's just totally mad. I, I think if we really wanted to improve education, you'd make all teachers practitioners as well as teachers. And I don't just mean artists. So mm. the scientists would be actively engaged mm. in research. The geographers would be actively engaged in fieldwork. The, the English teachers would be actively writing. And and they should be paid to do that. Mm. And then they should be out doing so that they're there in school, yeah, maybe three days a week. But the rest of the time they're out being real, real people and, mm. and, and feeding in. And I think it would be amazing. That would be great, right? It would be amazing, yeah. you know. But, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. I guess the question really was around other theorists, thinkers, artists, practitioners that have informed your, your, your practice, your thinking. Um, so, well, I mean, there's a few of them, and, and for, for different reasons. So, John Baldessari was mm. big. Um, he was big. He was he huge. He was very tall. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was hugely important because I think um, his, his ideas, even if maybe he was reluctant to completely admit this, uh, but I think the way in which the symbiosis of his art practice and his teaching practice was so evident. Uh, for me, it was, you know, I went to see that... that when I first became really aware of this, was going to see that big retrospective at the Tate, mm. and seeing this, you know, room after room of the most incredibly inventive, exploratory ideas, uh, and then unpicking it a bit and realizing they were all to do with the various contexts in which he was teaching, and then the sort of flatlining when he stopped teaching, and the sense right. that he just kind of repeated himself a bit, yeah. I think. Um, but I think the way in which he thought about teaching as being part of a process mm. uh, of, of making was really important to me. So he, he was important. So was the, um, sorry to interject, was the, was the ingredient that was missing in that later part, was it, the, was it the, the way of thinking as a teacher artist or was it the interactions with... I, I think it's the interactions and, yeah. I, and I think another person that I would say is massively important is Phila de Barlow and right. for similar sorts of reasons yeah. actually. And, and I would say that she's become more, I mean, she's important to me from a, from a practitioner perspective. Mm. So I'd put her in my sort of pantheon of, of hugely influential in terms of my own practice, making practice. But I think, I think her approach to teaching is also very interesting. And I, I'm, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work with her quite closely since from the foundation. She mm. was an advisor for a year. So got to spend quite a lot of time talking to her about things like this. And one of the things that she said, which I 
which I love, is she talked about why teaching was so important to her, because she taught for basically 50 years, and then wow. you know, in her 70s, suddenly, okay, she probably wouldn't be teaching anyway because she's now in her 70s, but she now doesn't need to because she's with House and Work and she's you know, internationally hugely successful. But she talks about that with a sense of anxiety and regret because she says uh, what teaching allowed her to do was just to make with no other worries about having to be a successful artist because she was a successful artist because she was making work as a teacher, but also it placed her in a dialogic critical space all the time engaged in conversation, engaged in, in ideas. And very often when an artist becomes successful, uh, there's no space for that anymore. Mm. Because the people that talk to you about your work are your gallery who are interested in selling your work yeah. and showing your work. So they're not going to say, that's not very interesting, that's more interesting, because they're all like fawning over you. Or you might have a critic write a review where they slam you, but there's no, there's no dialogue going on. So she talked about, I mean, specific to her, she talked about the fact that so much of her practice was about making and then remaking using the same materials, which when nobody's interested in buying your work, you can do, but as soon as you're selling your work, you can't do it because somebody else owns it. So it's changing her practice yeah. in a way that teaching didn't because teaching ran along parallel. So she, she's very important. Um, Jeff Gies was very important. So um, yeah, yeah. I think he's, he's sort of... I kind of, I was so excited when I discovered him and the idea of somebody with that level of seriousness and eventually the level of respect with which his work was, was kind of perceived, uh, received, um, but in the context of working in a school for his whole life and, and it being around the way that he engaged with students. Stuff. So I, th I thought he was, he was amazing, really interesting educator and artist. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose that, yeah, I'd say those are my three, the three that stand yeah. out. And then there's lots of other people, I yeah. mean, I think, um, somebody that actually I didn't really know very much about when I was teaching, but I've got more interested in since is Celestine Frenet and wow. his ideas around um, around what a whole education was. And he's interesting in that he was a he was a, a French school teacher um, in the early 20th century, and then he went off and fought in the First World War. Right. And he was so traumatized by the First World War that when he came back and went back into a classroom, he um, he was incapable of teaching the way that he was supposed to teach as a French schoolmaster. So he couldn't stand at the front and dictate and shout because it just was too traumatic. So he stopped teaching like that and he involved local craftspeople and makers in the village and brought them in and the students learned to blacksmith and to, wow. and, to and they made their own wow. newspaper. And, and this, we're talking the 1920s yeah. in rural France and amazing kind of, kind of innovative, what we were talking about earlier, that idea of you know, everything taught through project and mm. real learning. And he was doing it in a, primary school in rural France. Oh, he's mad. And, you know, he did this amazing thing later on in his career where he, he invited uh, parents to talk about what they thought was important and what they thought their children should learn by the end of their education and then build a curriculum around that. And, of course, it included things like an understanding of French revolutionary history, but it also included things like being able to prepare a meal for a family mm. or um, mend a puncture on a bicycle. And so this is yeah. kind of like, this is great. This is what education should be about. And we're talking about nearly 100 years ago, somebody was doing this yeah. quietly in a little yeah, village. It raises a big question about, you know, who is setting the, who is setting the agenda in, in terms of what yeah, we're learning. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think he's interesting. And then, um, I mean, I think, I think uh, Rob Fairley at Room, the original Room 13, I think, oh, I, yeah. think, uh, I think Room 13 suffers a bit from, from trying to expand 
trying to be a model. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that, that, that I, I feel quite passionately about is that there isn't a model that you can replicate. You can't take something and say, let's all do this. Mm. It goes back to what context. we talked about a lot, it's about context. Yeah. So, you know, why was CalArts in the 1970s the place to go and study that kind of thing? Because Baldessari was there mm. and because there was a certain group of students there. Mm. And when Baldessari left and those students gone through, it's not the same place. Mm. Goldsmiths, you in, know, the Goldsmiths in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s, um, maybe St. Martin's in the 60s, mm. uh, I think Welling in the early 2000s. You know, and it's it's it's, it's certain points, and I think room has been end of the 1990s, early 2000s, absolutely incredible mm. in that place with that particular artist. But once he moved on, and once they tried to replicate it elsewhere, it's something else, and it's yeah. still good, but it's not what it was. So yeah. I think, you know, and it's all right for things to be finite. I think that's also, you know, Black Mountain College, obviously another mm. another mm. thing, hugely. I mean, as an area, not necessarily an individual educator, but mm. and as an approach and the idea that. We had this idea about it as an art school. It wasn't just an art school, mm. you know. It was, it was, and again, I mean, it goes back to the front end things. It's that that idea that Annie Alba's teaching a weaving course, so people turn up and it's an empty room. What do we need if we're going to weave? Well, we need wool, and we need to build a loom. Okay, how do we have wool? We better learn how to look after mm. sheep, then, haven't we? And I mean, I just love that idea of, yeah. all right, let's take a year before we've got the wool we've made, and then we work out how we're going to weave it. I, I just, Brilliant. it's yeah. great. You know? It's understanding what happens in that dialogue and how mutually beneficial it is, is, you know, whenever you watch anybody teaching badly at any level, often that's what's bad. It's that it's not, it's not going both ways. Mm. Like, you know, they may have amazing subject knowledge, they may have prepared really well, but if it's, if it's not going two ways, it's not very interesting. And, and I think when you see where, some, where the person who's leading the lesson is open to the lesson going in a different direction because of a conversation that's happening. That's when it's that's when the magic. I mean, it doesn't matter about what the subject is or mm. the theme or anything else. Sure. That's the that's good teaching. It's about dialogue and it's about it's about generating new spaces and ideas. And that's why like, education is such a kind of it might sound like a really cheesy thing to say, but education is such a such an incredible thing that shouldn't just be about being in school because it's about exchanging and talking and developing mm. and ideas. It's so fascinating, you know. And I think now, you know, doing a lot more work with institutions that aren't schools and thinking about educational projects outside of that formal context and seeing the same mistakes being made there of, you know, institutions like galleries and museums imagining their responsibility is to, is to have all the stuff that they give mm. and not being interested in the dialogue back and saying, you get rid of all of that. If it's about developing a relationship with a group, oh, you're going to have magic's going to happen. You've got all this space to do all these incredible things. You've got these amazing objects and this access to all this stuff. But you're too interested in just doing it to people and not yeah. being open to the dialogue. Yeah. And it's, it's the same issues. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's a simple, a simple shift, really. Yeah, it's it? so simple. Yeah. yeah, it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you say that all learning is creative, as in genuine learning in your God, I don't know. That's really difficult, isn't it? Because I think I think there is. Um, no, I don't think all learning is creative. Because I think there are. We learn to do things that are um, that are really necessary, and it's not be about being creative at all. I mean, like like learning to drive. Mm. I mean, I can't I, get creative. With that. It's not being about creative. It's about learning how learning yeah. how something works, learning what you need to do to make it work, yeah. in order to in sense. What's in, actually driving is quite an interesting one to talk about, isn't it? Because once you can drive, you don't think about driving ever again. Mm. 
I mean, unless you decide you want to really be like, I don't know, a racing car driver yeah. or something, you just do it. And in fact, if you start thinking about what you're doing, you probably mess up and mm. bump into another car. So you learn something in order not to think about it. And actually, I think there's lots of examples like that. I think a lot of basic level maths you learn in order not to think about it. Um, so I think, no. So I think some learning is about in order, maybe some learning is, is about freeing up space to do the thinking you need to do sure. to be creative. So the routines and habits, yeah. like habitual learning. Yeah, is, I think so, yeah. You know, you need to learn how to tie your shoelaces. Mm. You could spend hours getting creative with tying your shoelaces. Probably you just tie them when you don't think about what you're doing anymore. Yeah. But once upon a time, you couldn't tie them at all. And that was a problem because you trip over your shoelaces. <laughs> so I think some learning is, yeah. yeah, some learning is not creative, but yeah. necessary, yeah. Can I put you really on the spot and, and say, can you offer some form of definition or, or notion of what you believe creativity is then? Oh God, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And, I, and the reason I'm not going to do that is because I think it's, a, I think it's a, a very tricky word. And I think at the moment, I think it has uh, unfortunate political mm. power and connotations. I think, I think there's a, um, I, I, I worry about the sector by which I mean arts and arts mm. education, feeling like they have some ownership over this word and banging on about creative education and creative, and I and I think it's really detrimental. Mm. And I think it's it, the only thing I think's worse is the word culture, right. and that that I get really cross about when people start talking about cultural capital. Yeah. It makes me want to run screaming because yeah, I because curriculum. you know. The, the, it's being defined by, the, by people who look the same mm. in the same room who've always defined mm. it and they're so worried about the people who aren't in that room not having access to this thing called cultural capital that what they've missed is that they've made the decision about what the cultural capital is in the first place and mm. that's, that's, that's the that's problem. That's the same issue. That's the problem. problem. So we've got you know, people in the higher echelons of some of these organisations, these, these bodies, worrying about the demographic of the Royal Opera House mm. because it looks a certain way mm. and the people who don't go there should go there because they've decided that's important culturally mm. and they're not worried about the audiences at other cultural events that don't fit their bill of what's important culturally and I think that's massively yeah. problematic. Yeah, I mean I say that's the same for, for galleries and the, the cultural spaces. Yeah. That, that programme in their isolated sort of tower in a, in a sense. Massively so. Delivering things that they think people, or dictating what they think is relevant. Yeah, and, and, it's, and, it, and it's all done with the best possible mm. intentions. Like, you know, I've just come back from Berlin, I'm doing an advisory role with a museum in Berlin at the moment, and I'm helping a, a new education team at this museum set up what they want to do in engagement programmes, and they're really great. They've got brilliant ideas and on the one hand they're doing things that are hugely progressive and you go this is amazing on the other hand it's like going back 30 years going oh god it's so far behind you know mm. but what comes up again and again is this kind of question you know yesterday i was in a meeting where his team is saying oh but you know we wanted this project to be about bringing in audiences that don't normally come in and we've ended up with this audience and they are a different audience but they're an audience that's interested in you know sort of unusual approaches to music and it's a different audience to one but it still looks similar to the audience and I said are we saying they're still basically educated middle-class German people coming in and they went yeah I said and you don't want the middle-class Jay you want the why and they're like what do you mean why because we need to expand our diversity I said yeah but maybe they're maybe they're not interested mm. maybe this isn't their thing it's okay they've got other things they're interested in 
are you worried about not going to their things? Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, that's interesting. And, it's, and th their, their motivations are so honourable, mm. but they're not worrying about whether they are going to go to, I mean, you know, the example I've used a lot, maybe it gets a bit tired, but if you look at the, if you look at the, the, the demographic that piles into a, a Millwall at the Den on a Saturday afternoon, they are almost exclusively white, working class background and mostly male. I'd, I have yet to see a, a cultural figure stand up and talk about how we, we shift the diversity of a championship football match to ensure that there are more uh, black people going, that there are more middle class people going, that, no, 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 it's fine. Let, let, the, mm. let them get on with their culture over there, but we're not gonna consider that culture. And I think that's, I think that's interesting. That is interesting. Why is that not culture? Yeah. And, and, if you, and if you think about it in the terms of educationally, if you're five years old and you're brought up in a, in a wealthy middle-class family uh, who, are, who are, in inverted commas, cultured, where you have books in the house, uh, where you get taken to the theatre and you get taken to dance lessons and you get taken to museums and you get given books to read, um, you've got access to all these things, which is brilliant. It's brilliant. And should the person being born in a, you know, let's be cliched about it, single parent, high-rise, uh, working all hours, latchkey, um, looking after your younger siblings, no books in the house, never had a book in the house. What education should do for the person in the high rise is give them access to the ballet, the, the opera, the, the, the museum, books, all those things. Because it may be that even if your parent isn't interested in that, that you get taken to see something and you go, that's for me, that's what I want to do. And you break that threshold problem of, I can't go in that big building with the pillars and the stairs because that's for rich people. You're taken in the school and you go, oh, I can go in, oh, that's for me too. Mm. But the other, the other thing's true too, because that middle class family taking their kids to the ballet and the opera probably aren't going to take them through a turnstile to a sort of urine-stained terrace and let them watch a first division football match. So they're never going to do it. They're never going to, because it's scary. I mean, if you've never gone, mm. it's, it's just as scary as British Museum. I mean, it, it may be even more so. I mean, yeah. that, that space doesn't feel like it's for you, you know. Yeah. Squeezing through that turnstile with a big fat ball bloke in front of you with a pie in one hand and a pint in the other doesn't feel like it's for you. Yeah. Um, so every child should be taken to that as well. And it might be that the middle class kid coming from the house in Kensington goes, the thing I really enjoyed was standing on the terrace shouting at the goalie. I want to do that more. This is, it's quite um, revelatory, really, because it's, it's why should it all be that way? Exactly. Yeah. And the problem it's all that way is because it's a bunch of well-educated middle-class mm. people who think that what they've got is more important. Yeah. And that's the problem with the whole term of cultural capital, yeah. is it's already been decided by the people who are saying, and then, with the right motivation, everybody should have a bit of this, yeah. but, but you're not interested in saying everybody should have a bit of that, are you? It's awkward. I came here this morning. I'm going to spend the day here. Um, I haven't done very much except move a few things around because I knew you were coming. And when you've gone, I'll paint. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Mm. And now I've got the pressure of everybody sitting there in a sense. Mm. But, but if, I, if I force myself through it, if I keep going, I'll, I'll get into a space where stuff starts to happen. But I know, I know to start with, I've probably got to put some things on that are just, just going gonna, gonna to be rubbish. Yeah. It's all right. But that's all right. Yeah. It's all right to make a load of marks that don't mean anything. It's all right to scrape them off. It's all right to put something else down. It's all right to spend ages mixing up a colour and painting it, and it's horrible, and take that off. In fact, it's necessary. 
to get to the space mm -hmm. where it's going to work. And I think, I think that's, I think going back to thinking about it in an educational context, you know, one of the things that, that particularly uh, young people find very, very difficult, I think, not just with visual arts, but with, make, with arts generally, is imagining it's got to be right, or imagining it's got to be what's in their head to start with. Mm. So that, that, when they're very small, not at all, I mean, yeah. inst instinctive, it's brilliant. And then the whole of our education system seems to, and maybe not just education, but self-awareness, whatever, becomes about um, closing down all that instinctiveness. Oh, it's not looking right. It's not looking the way I think it's going to look. And not being open to, what about the way it's going to look? That's, ex that's much more interesting. Yeah. Um, and most people never get back to there. They, you never get back to mm. the point where you just do something, you know, make a sound. Oh, that's an interesting sound. What can I do with that sound? No, no, most people want the sound to sound like something they already think, so they don't make the sound at mm. all, you know. Mm. Most people don't draw a line because they're worried about the line not looking the way it is in their head. Mm. But, but actually, all the greatest artists, whether they're musicians, whatever, do these things and see where it goes. And that's what leads... Absolutely, and it's, that's innovation. And that's yeah. innovation, exactly. Would you use the word therapeutic? Or just thinking um, about the kind of process of everyone leaving the room is... It, again, liberating. You know, would you use that word? I think it's I, I, it's hard. I, I, I worry about the word therapeutic yeah. in relation to making art because I think it makes it sound a bit like it's sort of it's oh lovely. I've all kind of. Mm. But but actually, if I'm if I'm being really honest, yes, because certainly coming here is therapeutic. Mm. Like usually, I don't want to. I mean, this is this, if I if I can't come here, if I've got to go to to work, I've got to do something else then the only thing I want to do on that day is be here. Yeah. And it's not fair, because I've got to be somewhere else. On the day I've set aside to come here, I can think of a hundred reasons why I don't want to come. Really? Because I don't know what I'm going to do, yeah. and I don't know how I'm going to do it. But I also know at the same time that once I've been here a little while, I'm going to be having a lovely time, mm. and it's going to be great, and I'm going to be immersed in something. And it doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes I'll come and I'll spend all day, and I go, what a load of shit. Nothing's worked. This is crap. I feel shit about it. I want to go home and open a bottle of wine and just forget it and forget yeah. I ever even thought about being a painter. <laughs> and other times I'll have a day where I don't want to leave because it's going, oh my God, this is like everything's just clicking and clicking and this is amazing and I just want to be here mm. and I, want to, I don't want to leave because, because it's all really, this is the moment. Um, but, but all of that is therapeutic, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I, I remember um, kind of talking with colleagues when I was teaching about what, we are, what would our ideal life be and uh, having a colleague who said, well, I just want to be in the studio all the time. And I, and I said, oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. You know, I've got to be engaged with mm. students forever and the rest of it and school and so on. But now, part of me thinks, oh, yeah, well, if somebody said you can be there all the time, I realise it would be yeah. pretty damn good, actually, and yeah. where that would go. And it would be a different thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. But then I think part of that is also about um, recognising where discipline comes into something and mm. that... You know, that kind of, you know, the sort of Hollywood cliche of the artist. So if you watch something like um, the Ed Harris film about Pollock, mm. and there's that brilliant, brilliant, cheesy Hollywood scene where he's, he's in the barn and he's kind of working out what he wants to do with oh, his yeah. magic, and he mixes this colour, and then he sort of gets distracted by something, and we can see the brush, yeah. we can see the drip appearing, and then, the it, and then as he goes like that, and then he does it again, it's like, and of course, that isn't how that happens. <laughs> But it is also how it happens. But what, what, what's missing from that Hollywood vision is, is the hours of graft, actually. Mm. It's the hours of, it's the discipline. It's going again and again and again and again. And I think another thing Gustin said that I, I, I'm beginning to understand more is he said it's a, it's a long, long preparation for a few seconds of innocence. 
And I think that's something else that's really exciting. Like, like the, the epiphanal moment, the, the gesture that suddenly works, that is a real thing. But it takes hours and hours and hours of it not happening to give you the space for it to happen. And I think that the discipline thing, you know, keeping going, keeping making, keeping doing, most of it's going to be rubbish. Most of it's going to make you feel crap. Most of it's not going to do anything. But you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I think I might have done something there. And that's, mm. that's good. You know, yeah. that's is, is that, do you still see that as your, your artistic practice, that extension of yeah. teacher as artist? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think so. It sounds as exciting. As no, it is just as exciting. Wedding. And I think all those sorts of things about, you know, thinking about what curating is, thinking about what gallery spaces do, thinking about how you engage with groups educationally, outside of formal education, uh, publication, mm. the role of publication. And all those, I think, they're all such interesting things to, mm. to, um, to explore. And the foundation is a, is a great place in which to be able to explore them. So, yeah. yeah, brilliant. So exciting, so much to be thinking about this for <laughs> <laughs> mind blown. But luckily there's, well, hopefully, there is a recording that I can go back to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that we've covered so much. We, we have covered I've, a lot. I've, I think it's, it's been so interesting oh, for me talking absolute to you pleasure. today, and hopefully other people will enjoy the conversation as well. Thank I don't know you. how I'm going to edit this. I was going to say, this is a big editing job due <laughs> yeah. there, I'm sure. Oh, it'll be tough to cut things out, but thanks so much. My pleasure, Ryan. Great talking to you.